Welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast series from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to help our listeners better understand the challenges that face the business of higher education. Our hope is that you walk away with a stronger sense of the trends, policies, legislative and regulatory issues that may impact campuses today and in the future. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of educational tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. This is Megan Schneider, Senior Director of Government Affairs at Nakubo. Joining me today is Heather E. McGowan. Heather is a future of work strategist who just did a great talk at the Nakubo annual meeting. In that session, Heather spoke about adaptation advantage, how to lead in a post-pandemic world. She and I are going to talk a little bit more about that today, but we're also going to talk a little bit more about how you as an employee uh, can marry your passions with your work. And we're also going to talk about how colleges and universities, as both employers and educators, can help their employees and their students better prepare for a post-pandemic world. Heather, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, And could you tell us a little bit, start off by telling us a little bit about your book, The Adaptation Advantage? Sure. So my co-author, Chris Shipley, and I started writing this book in 2016, 17, something like that. Um, And we'd both been looking at future work from a few different angles. I was looking at it from my experiences in both academia and corporate, and hers more in technology and startups. And the book really has three key points. Um, first, that the future work, which is really the now work, is about rapid learning, unlearning, which is increasingly important, as well as adaptation. And second, in order to do this, we have to let go of the way we've always done it, and equally, if not more difficult, who we think we are. So there are a lot of issues around identity. And then third, to lead in this sort of new normal or future work normal that is now rapidly here. Um, we need leaders who are comfortable with vulnerability and ambiguity because most of what they're going to be doing is leading people and learning towards to do things they've never done before. And so instead of leaders that are just, you know, unquestioned experts who drive productivity top down, we now need humble, curious learners who can help teams and specifically team members become self-propelled learners. And we wrote the book, uh, we handed in the manuscript in uh, fall 2019 And then about January, February 2020, the whole world blew up. Um, And although it was written prior to the pandemic, we found our advice to be sort of eerily prescient. You know, many of the things that we thought would happen over three to five years happened over three to five weeks as we accelerated our transformation of digital and our entrance into the future work. It is a little bit spooky how how well that translated. Yeah. Uh, so you spoke a little bit about the new normal, and you also spoke about the need for leaders having to adapt to a new normal, which I think is is so spot on. Um, but can you tell us a little bit more about what you think the, the new normal will be for the future of work now, post-pandemic? Sure. So uh, uh, just a couple of uh, key points on, on metrics, on how quickly we accelerated in the last uh, 66 or 67 weeks, however long it's been. 
um, and how superbly we adapted. Um, it, McKinsey estimates that we leapt forward five years in our transformation of digital in the first eight weeks. Um, Accenture was tracking that we were about 20% into our migration to the cloud and the balance, the other 80% was going to take a decade. Now it's on track to happen in five years. And previous estimates that we would hand off tasks to technology, 50% of current tasks by 2033, according to the Frey Osborne model, now has been updated by the World Economic Forum, who thinks we'll do that by 2025. So really compressed time. Um, And if you look at it, no new tools came out that made it possible for, you know, the percentage of us who were able to work from home or learn online to do so. The only thing that changed was behavior, was our, you know, no longer reluctance to use these tools and technologies. And that's a really good sign to me because inside of two weeks, month, for some folks, everybody who could work online did. Everybody who could trust the remote teams did. Everybody who could learn online did. Um, And, you know, in academia, I'm sure you folks know, there have been years we've been having these conversations about whether that course could go online, that program could go online, or that instructor would ever teach online. Well, almost overnight, they all did, and did so largely successfully. It wasn't perfect, but we learned a lot. So we accelerated our transformation digital, and we adapted pretty superbly. Now, looking post-pandemic, a lot of people are obsessed with the the major factor that got disrupted in the pandemic was place was where we work. So all the conversations are about, well, is it going to be remote? Is it going to be hybrid? Are we going to call everybody back into the office? And so where is something we've, we've had a forced social experiment about now we can question that. But at the same time, the other things that we sort of have become much more aware of is not only where, but who the workplace was really designed for men with no caregiving responsibilities. Um, and all of our structures and expectations are around that, but you could see what happened in the pandemic where somewhere between 2.3 and 3 million women, uh, moms mostly left the workforce because it's not designed for people with caregiving responsibilities. Um, that part of our soft infrastructure is pretty badly broken. And if you look at the Brookings Institute research, they found that all of our gains to the middle class happened from women entering the workforce in, the, in, in mass in the 70s. So this has not only moral, but economic implications. And then if you look at, so that's where and who, now that you look at what, um, we've lived in a world of what John Hagel refers to as scalable efficiency, where we really focus on routine and predictable tasks to reduce risk and, and scale solutions. Increasingly, we're going to hand those tasks off to technology. So now we have to start looking at, well, what we do being much more about as I said earlier, learning tours and preparing people to embark on those. And then, so that's where, who, and what. Now you look at how. We still measure working hours. The reason we work eight hours a day is because in 1914, Henry Ford figured out that all the accidents on the production line happened in the 9th, 10th, and 11th hour. So he cut work to eight hours a day and also allowed him to do three shifts because that's when physical labor breaks down. Now, some of us are still doing physical labor, and some work does need to be measured in hours because you need coverage at a call center or customer support or a hospital, et cetera. But so, much of a, so many of us are doing cognitive work that's really not time-bound. And if you look at concentration breaks down between four and six hours, creativity caps out at four hours. So we're still 
measuring working hours at eight hours a day based on something that's more than 100 years old. And then you look at why we work. You know, we work for income, certainly, but we've also increasingly worked for identity status and security um, when really it needs to be much more about purpose and values. Some estimates that about 50, 40, somewhere between 40 and 50% of people working today are thinking about changing jobs to better align not only with their lifestyle, but also with their sense of purpose. So when you think about work, it's gone from rights to responsibilities and from identity to impact. Um, I have an expression that says learning is the new pension because what we learn at work is what makes us more attractive for our next job. So it's no longer about the past job and the past experience. It's your ability to learn and adapt. So that's how I see the new normal about across where, who, what, how and why, whereas most folks, I think, are just still focusing on where because that's mostly acutely ahead of us. Uh, one good point that you really made was that so many of us now uh, feel like our identity is is somehow tied to our work and what we do. Um, but in a broader sense, you've spoken a lot about how to uh, marry your passion to market needs. Mm-hmm. And I would just love to hear you talk more about how you can go about doing that, um, especially in, in this post-pandemic time when so many people are are having trouble even finding a job at all. Um, and how do you continue marrying your passion for market needs? Um, what do you do if you, you can't find a job doing that? Um, we'll, we'll start there. Yeah. So my heart goes out to anybody who's been displaced by work. Um, studies in the both you in the U S and the UK have found that involuntarily involuntary job change is harder to overcome than the loss of a primary relationship. And why is that? It's because we've started over the last several decades asking little children what they want to be when they grow up and asking them to pick realistic selves, which is absurd when 100% of jobs are going to change and half the work within them may be automated, those work tasks, therefore 100% of jobs are going to change. We ask university students, those who go to university, uh, to pick a major or area of study. Um, A lot of times before they've even stepped foot on campus, it's part of their application process. And if you think about that, the social mobility mobility implications of that are huge because you pick based on what seems realistic or achievable for you, based on what's in your social network, what your parents do, what your friends' parents do, what you see in your community what you've been exposed to in high school. I mean, I certainly wouldn't be speaking to you if I was limited to what I was told I was good at or not good at and most more, more likely in high school. It's a very thin slice of life. Um, and young people today are going to have many jobs across many different industries. So that's why it kind of comes back to purpose. Um, if you have a sense of what you care about, what motivates you, I use the expression self-propelled, you know, what gives you agency, what, Uh, you know, what you're going to naturally want to learn and do, um, and then marry that with a market need. So you're interested in animals, you're interested in elderly people, you're interested in technology, whatever your interests are that you're naturally curious about, where's the market need around that? And it may take longer to find the right job, but you'll be happier within it if you align it with a sense of your self-expression. Because there's unending market needs. If you look during this pandemic, We've had a huge increase in entrepreneurship. Some of it's been on a need, and some of it is just income replacement kind of stuff. But um, chaos loves an opportunity, and there's always a market need. So it's just a matter of finding it. And I know that sounds a little obscure, but trying to fit yourself into a predetermined box by finding a job may fulfill your economic needs today, 
but might not necessarily fulfill your, your career aspirations and your self-expression. So, of course, Nakubo is a, a higher ed association, and we, we represent colleges and universities here in the U.S., um, but you have worked not just with colleges and universities and in academia and in the U.S., you've also worked with academia globally. Can you tell us a little bit about differences you see in the adoption of people practices across countries um, and even a little bit across industries? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to generalize, but different cultures do have forces. I mean, some focus on education and perfect test scores. There's some, you know, parts of the world where they've got much higher, well, many of them, PISA scores than us. But um, some focus on investments in technologies, like, you know, China has gone all in on artificial intelligence. Um, and some focus on human needs like happiness and contentment. So I see much more of a force of that coming back around. Um, it's hard to say who will win, but I suspect those who are focusing on unleashing human potential will ultimately prevail. Because um, at the end of the day, what's a technology without a focus on human potential? What's the perfect test score in the world of intelligent machines? Um, so I, one of the things my mantras lately is that we're entering the human capital era. Um, and it's been kind of proven out. The S&P 500, if you calculate the enterprise value on it. Uh, over the last 100 plus years. In the 1930s, it was 100% of the value that was created was created with physical stuff like property, plant, and equipment, tangible assets. Um, and that was in part because mostly what we did was we made stuff. Um, in 1975, that shifted to about 80%, 83%, something like that, um, came from tangible stuff. In 2018, the last time we calculated it, it was only 16%. The rest of it is intangible assets, which is really human capital humans are increasingly making all the value around us. And over the last 50 years, we've taught, treated humans like a cost to contain rather than asset to develop because they don't show up anywhere on the balance sheet. They're an intangible good. But the essence, uh, Securities and Exchange Commission just changed it, now requiring companies to get more insight into what their human capital is so that investors can make decisions. And it's not clear yet, but it's a signal that they're starting to see humans are much more important in the creation of value. So now you could see much more investment in humans in terms of how did you recruit them? How do you take care of them? How do you make sure they're well-educated? How do you upskill, reskill them, make sure they're rested? Is eight hours a day optimal if you really want to unleash human potential? So I think we're on the cusp of a really interesting era. Yeah, I'd love to build on that. And I, I love the idea of entering the era of human capital. Um, you touched on this uh, in our previous question, but typically when you describe the future company, um, as you just did, you did, you tend to do so in terms of culture and capacity. How can higher ed institutions specifically prepare students to meet those demands, but also be ready to work in those types of workforces? Yeah, so just to, to, to kind of fr frame what I mean by culture and capacity. So an organization uh, is a group of people, and they generally make brand and products, and product could be a physical product or a service. Um, if you really break it down, that's just exhaust from your learning. Uh, a brand is just an external expression of your internal culture. And a product or service is just evidence of your capacity. It's your, and as the world uh, the change rate in the world continues to accelerate. And indeed, you know, today is the slowest rate to change for the rest of your life because every day it's accelerating. Um, you can't focus on the exhaust anymore. It leaves you too flat-footed. So instead to focus on, you know, what, what did you learn today? What did you change today? What did you discover today? How did you nurture your culture? Culture your conditions uh, under which you create value. They're also 
um, what attracts people to your organization, both customers and employees. Employees are attracted to your culture because they believe what you believe. Um, you know, your organization, why does your organization exist? That's your uh, mission. How does the world look differently because it exists? That's your vision. And then what will and won't you do as a company? You know, what are your operating principles or your values? Um, and that's how you attract people to your company, both employees and customers. And so if you focus on cultural and capacity, you're much more agile to changing market conditions. So how does this translate to higher ed? Well, higher education has been for so long turning out folks with predetermined skills and existing knowledge. Uh, with fixed occupational identities, like I am an X, you know, this is my major, this is who I am. A lot of times um, students will identify as being part of their major before they've got any knowledge or skills that make them even warrant that major. You know, I'm a business person. Okay, well, you've taken a business class. <laughs> You're not a business person yet, or I'm a, uh, an engineer. Okay, you've taken a math class. You're not an engineer yet. Um, and that doesn't preclude you from collaborating with designers or business people or anthropologists. And so it's that fixed occupational identity and that sense of sort of a singular first job that really is killing, I think, higher education. Higher education needs to be much better at helping people get in touch with what drives them and letting them explore more, take things outside your major and help folks have a transdisciplinary mindset and then find their way into occupational opportunities, aka jobs, that allow them for that self-expression and, and help them navigate on their journey. So they're much better at adapting between opportunities as opposed to seeing themselves in one predetermined fixed occupational identity. It's funny, I, I have a niece in college right now, and she's thinking about changing her major. Uh, and it's it's funny, she's only a sophomore, and the idea of changing her major seems like such a existential crisis to her. And it, it is interesting from the outside to see how much it's impacting her. What I'm like, well, you know, you're, you're not a business person already. Yes, you've been a business major for two years, but that's not you know, who you are. But it really does seem to be uh, impacting her sense of self. So it's, it's really interesting that, uh, the, the facts that you shared on that. Yeah. And we, in, in the book, we go a lot into identity. Um, particularly my experiences working in higher ed, I was just struck by even how much it's changed since I went, which wasn't that long ago, relatively speaking. I mean, it wasn't a hundred years ago, um, in terms of how we've become so focused on this locked occupational identity at a time when we need folks who are great, who have greater adaptation. And if you think about it, um, your prefrontal cortex, you know, the, the newest part of our brain doesn't fully form until we're 30 or thereabouts. Yet we make the, probably the biggest debt decision or the second biggest de debt decision in our lives at a time we don't really have the cognitive skills to do it. Yeah, that's that is a great point. <laughs> So we've touched on students some, uh, but why is it also important for higher ed institutions to shift, one, the way they recruit their own talent, but also once they have that talent, how they help their own employees find their purpose, um, even, even beyond when they're students? The weird thing about higher ed is, so the, the best research I've seen, or the only really research I've seen on what percentage of people ever work in the field of their undergraduate major, was by the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, and I want to say it was like in the 2010s, like 12, 14, 15, 16, something like that, relatively recently enough. And they found that only 27% of people worked in the field of their undergraduate major. Well, those 27% of people tend to be faculty, you know? So you've got this uh, 
minority majority situation. So you've got faculty telling you like, this is your major, this is who you are. Don't take anything else on your major. Uh, and you've got, uh, they're not the norm. You know what I mean? So when you go to recruit uh, faculty and staff for higher education, you have to let them know that they're not going to recreate the experience they had because look how much differently the world operates from when most of us graduated. So you have to sort of set that expectation. For some folks, I find they go into higher education expecting it to be the same as it was when they went through higher ed. And it's not, nor should it be. So attracting people to the world as it's coming at us more quickly. Like one of the analogies I often use is um, there's a reason the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror is we should be focusing more ahead of us than behind us. And it's like we're driving in a car and um, the speed the car going is going keeps accelerating. Um, yet we tend to pack the car full of people looking in the rearview mirror when we ought to be looking further and further out the horizon. So when you're going to attract talent to higher education, which needs to change probably more than any other institution out there right now, you kind of attract folks who are interested in looking further out on the horizon than in the rearview mirror. Because our members are, you know, primarily CFOs and CBOs of colleges and universities, so really sort of what you think of when you think of a, a traditional higher ed administrator, um, what do you think are some of the things that they should keep in mind when they're setting organizational goals? It's almost like higher ed institutions have to think about themselves if uh, they're startups, and they think about themselves as whatever the farthest thing away from a startup can be, the most established, rigid, staid organization. Because um, there's never been a better time to be in the learning business if you can define that learning business as broad as possible. In the last numbers, and these are pre-pandemic, IBM had something like 120 million people would need to be reskilled in the next three years, which is now, you know, and that number has probably doubled or tripled with the pandemic. You know, the 40% of people who are looking for new jobs now in the U.S., a lot of them will require reskilling or upskilling because they're changing occupations. The reason so many, so few people want to go back to some of those um, first-line jobs is they had, you know, traumatic experiences and they're burned out and now they want to do something different. So looking at higher ed institutions, if you're just in the degree granting business or the credentialing business, yeah, it will work for some. It will work for the elite institutions. They've got some endowment, which is like a moat. Um, it might work for some of the big state schools that can continue to be propped up to the extent that they are through state funding. Um, but the schools that are the most agile, you know, that launch experiments continuously. I mean, continuing in professional education is a great place to do those experiments and look at a variety of business models, not just one will be best served to meet the exploding demand in learning. To your earlier point, um, we've seen so much of that work just really come rapid fire from, it normally takes higher ed years to decide to do anything. And with the pandemic, so many decisions have had to been, be made so quickly. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see um, all of the innovation that actually ends up coming out of this period. Yeah, I mean, if you just look at the kind of standard formula, if you needed a new bachelor's degree program, it takes about a decade at least from the time the market says, you know, we need people credentialed to the time you actually get your first person credentialed. We don't have time for that. Um, and I, I thought it was really funny how you mentioned uh, traditionally in higher education, it is, it could be a years long discussion, whether or not we're going to move a class online or whether or not a class can be taught online. And when there was no choice, we all found 
oh, wow, this, this is actually can be done and it, it yeah. ways that we can improve on it. But, uh, decisions that previously would have taken much longer, uh, we were all sort of forced into and, um, you know, maybe that was a good thing. I, I think it was, I mean, we learned a lot. I mean, we learned a lot about what was wrong too. I mean, we learned so much more about, you know, racial inequities and income inequities and gender inequities. Uh, so we became much more aware of the things we need to fix. And the good news is in a lot of cases we are, uh, that encourages me. Yeah, me as well. Heather, thank you so much for all of your time today. I really appreciate it. Uh, very much looking forward to hearing you speak uh, at our meeting in a few weeks. Oh, great. All right. Take care. As a reminder, Heather will be serving uh, as a keynote speaker at the Nakubo 2021 annual meeting, speaking on the future of work and the future of learning. Heather is also co-author of the book, The Adaptation Advantage, Let Go, Learn Fast, and Thrive in the Future of Work. This visionary and timely book covers many aspects of both personal and professional life and provides invaluable keys on how to adapt and thrive in this fast-moving and unprecedented COVID-19 pandemic era. Thanks so much for joining us today for another episode of the Nakubo in Brief podcast. As always, please subscribe to get all of the latest episodes. You can find us via the Apple Podcast app, via the Nakubo website, and also via Stitcher in the uh, Google Play Store. Thanks again, everyone. Have a great day.